Welcome to Season 7 of Beyond the Jargon, a conversation with grad students about their research journey here at the University of Victoria from CFUV 101.9 FM. This episode was created on the traditional territory of the Songhees, Eskimos, and West Sandwich peoples, whose historical relationships with the land continue to this day. I am your host, Taiwo Afolabi. So welcome to another edition of Beyond the Dragons. Today we have in the studio Nico Bitsima. I'm going to allow Nico to uh, introduce um, herself. Uh, but I'm really excited for these um for this interview today because uh, uh, Nico's uh, research here at the University of Victoria is um really amazing and very important issues that she's um she's really working on and and I've had the privilege to work with Nicole on the the BIG uh, project and she's going to talk more about that. So it's good to have you today, Nicole. Thanks, Taiwo. Uh, do you want to introduce yourself to our listeners out there? Sure. Uh, my name is Nicole Bates-Emer and I'm a fourth year political science student doing a PhD on climate change and migration. Um, I also work at the Center for Global Studies where I manage a couple of research grants including a large SHRC, uh, Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada, a grant, partnership grant on border, called Borders and Globalization, or which we often refer to as BIG, and it's studying um, kind of the changing nature of international borders. So, yeah, uh, Nicole's introduction kind of um, takes us right into the heart of, of Nicole's research. Um, do you want to tell our listeners what your research about? Right, okay, so... Um, for my PhD, right? Not for yeah. my work. <laughs> yes, for your PhD. <laughs> because they're, they're it's kind of blend together, right? Some people think they blend. I like to keep them separate. Um, okay. Well, not always, actually. I just had a paper come out that blended my PhD research with uh, my work research. But um, my PhD research is looking at climate change and migration. So I'm basically looking at the intersection of... Um, climate change and the movement of people, whether, I mean, I use the term migration, but that could be forced, which is often called displacement in migration um, theory or discussions, um, or voluntary, which we often called migration, right? So there's this mm -hmm. kind of dis, um, discrepancy between migration, which is all encompassing, but usually means voluntary or optional, and displacement, which usually refers to forced. Mm -hmm. And so I'm looking at whether or how climate change um, affects people's mobility, so forced or voluntary. And specifically, I'm interested in if newcomers to Canada have been affected in their migration decisions in their own home countries, um, specifically in the global south. Interesting. So you're working on the intersection of migration and climate change. Yes. Uh, so so why, why are you interested in, in migration and, and, and climate change? As yeah, okay. Um, so, uh, yeah, so I actually took maybe 10 years off, actually more than 10 years off between my master's and my PhD. And during that time, um, I worked overseas in Tanzania with the UNHCR, which is the UN Agency for Refugees. Um, so I had kind of on the ground working experience in development with um, mainly Burundian refugees on the border of, um, like on the western border of Tanzania. 
Um, and then I came back to Canada and I actually got a job at the Center for Global Studies in 2008. And I was doing research there and a bunch of my research was around decision-making at the global level. And a project that I worked on was decision-making in the climate change forum and sector and um, why it's so hard for progress to be made politically on climate change. And so I came to this topic kind of as an intersection of my past experience in development and working with UNHCR and with the research work that I was doing on climate change because I thought that if people were aware of the kind of human side of climate change in terms of people being forced from their homes or not being able to live in a certain community or region because the precipitation or the rain had changed or the agricultural crops or the farmlands had changed and they couldn't provide a living for themselves. Well, if we knew this, then that would be a great incentive to do something about climate change here in the north and um, in Canada. And... Um, Unfortunately, that's not, it's not quite as simple as that because despite knowing that people are moving because of climate change, we still seem to be failing to do anything about it, causing it. Interesting. So, um, so would it be correct to say that part of the focus of your research is working with re uh, climate refugees? Mm -hmm. um, well, I'm so glad that you asked me that question because I never use that term because... Um, Refugees have a very specific meaning in international law. And as it stands right now, um, there is no such thing as a climate refugee because um, the definition of a refugee means somebody is forced to leave their own country because of fear of persecution based on um, race, religion, nationality, or membership in a political or social group. People who are displaced from climate change don't fall into that category. Interesting. Um, and so the other thing is, is that there have been groups in um, the South Pacific, particularly in low-lying island nations, who have quite vocally rejected the definition of a refugee because they don't associate or um, consider themselves or they don't want to be framed as somebody without agency who has been pushed from their land. So they have been very vocal and there are a bunch of social movements around rejecting the label of a refugee for people who are, who are moving because they don't look at themselves as victims. They look at themselves and they think that in, in discourse and in debate and in politics, refugees are often framed as victims who need help. And they're saying, we don't need help. We need people who are living in countries that are emitting <laughs> emissions or, or mm. you know, are, are responsible for climate change to curb those actions and enable us to continue our existence and our way of life and our communities in these um, low-lying island nations or whatever. So both because of the international legal definition around refugee and because of people who are being affected by climate change themselves saying, we're not refugees, we are people who would like to remain here and we don't want to be forced from our land. I use the term migrants in my own work. Um, but sorry, can I keep can I keep going on? Yes. Uh, uh, okay. In addition to that, maybe this was this this question we tag on to what you want to say yeah. next is what so what do you call uh, those that are displaced by climate change? Yeah. So um, I use the term climate climate migrant or climate induced migrant. 
And I do that because, um, and this is a, there's a huge debate in the literature and in the scholarship around exactly this issue. Um, I don't use the term refugee because of the reasons I just mentioned, um, but I think also because um, the way in which people are affected by climate change differs. Right, so there's some people who might be affected by a sudden storm or um, a large, uh, like the hurricanes that Hurricane Dorian just happened, right? Um, and so there are sudden onset events that displace people. Mm-hmm. There are slower onset events, mm-hmm. like um, again, changing agricultural patterns, um, or there are things like sea level rise. And so all of those things have different degrees of agency. And I think when we use the term agent, uh, refugee, um, people assume that there is less of um, an element of agency or people's ability to move or make decisions for themselves than there is when we use the term migrant. And I think migrant encompasses both refugees and people who are um, not forced but decide, actually, my way of life or my opportunity for livelihood isn't that great. I'm going to move to the city to seek a job that might have a better return than what the changing, you know, growing patterns in my community um, are. Interesting. So are there international laws that protect uh, climate migrants or mm-hmm. climate-induced migrants? And if there are, what are those laws and, mm-hmm. and how do those laws really play into their daily, daily realities? Mm-hmm. So, um, no, I mean, the short answer is no. This is uh, something that has just kind of, it's it's become more prominent or more popular to talk about recently. And there you can find all sorts of um, news articles. There were uh, when the climate, um, uh, the migrant caravan was coming up from Central America last year. There were pieces in The Guardian and The New York Times about the role of climate change in um, those movements of people. Um, but as of right now, there is no international protection. There are no international laws. There are um, there are types of there are some policies that work or there is some international assistance. Say, for example, if there is a massive hurricane, um, there will be kind of humanitarian disaster responses, right? So there, there is a field of international disaster response that um, is increasingly tied to climate change because climate change is causing more or more severe disasters or weather events. Um, but there isn't anything specifically for climate migrants. Um, agencies like the International Organization for Migration are talking about it, the UNHCR, the UN Agency for Refugees is talking about it, and now more and more frequently and um, with more kind of prominence, the UN um, the UN climate change body, so it's called the UNFCCC, which is one of these many acronyms that we have in political science, but it's basically the um, UN framework convention for climate change. It meets every December um, it's usually in the news again. There was a Paris Agreement coming out of one of these meetings a couple of years ago, and they are now starting to address displacement in their documents. But as of right now, if I were displaced from, or if I moved from my community in um, Oaxaca, Mexico, and I went to the U.S. because the droughts were so bad, I couldn't get a job and I decided to move. Or if there was a big hurricane and I decided to move, there is no international protection for me. Hmm. So if there are no legal legal provisions to mm-hmm. protect this, mm-hmm. 
this group of people, then how does that affect their lives or their realities? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, well, I I don't know because I can't speak for other people. <laughs> I can't speak for other people. Um, part of the empirical work that I want to do is interviewing people who have moved to discuss if or how climate change affected their, their movement. But I think... Um, I think that when um, I, and my kind of, you know, I think in the intro, it talks about our research journeys here. And my journey into this topic was thinking about it really from like an, um, a global justice or a, a climate justice issue is that there are communities and nations and states and companies that are causing climate change. And the people who are affected by that climate change are not necessarily those who have caused it. And so there is a duty or there is a responsibility for the people who have caused it to the people who are being affected by it. Um, as it turns out, that's a very naive, uh, you know, entry into a topic, which I learned quite quickly. Um, but I think that in the future, um, there will be more and more people displaced by climate change and that the international community and countries like Canada that frame themselves as a welcoming and migrant-friendly community and country or welcoming place need to think quite critically about what they're doing both with their own immigration policies and laws and with their contributions to the international agreements or bodies that have the ability to collectively do something around these issues. So I know that's straight a bit from your question about how it affects people's lives, but I feel like I just don't want to speak for 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 other people in that in that mm-hmm. context. Um, I understand that uh, speaking for other people, one can run the danger of misrepresenting mm-hmm, them and mm-hmm. and all of that. But it's just like refugees and IDPs, for example. Mm-hmm. Refugees have crossed internationally to recognize borders, and IDPs are still within their country. Mm-hmm. Um, but because the law that sort of well not really lost like soft mm-hmm. law that mm-hmm. UN kind of created to um to kind of guide if I'd actually call it guiding principles mm-hmm. on internal displacement mm-hmm. um versus the convention, the refugee convention, mm-hmm. which is really binding mm-hmm. uh on the states that did accept and ratify it. That doesn't mean they are doing it hundred percent to detail. But at least there's some some sort of provision yeah. legally so then that means that there is even though i might not be an idp but i can i can kind of understand in some de- to some degree how the fact that there is no law there's no binding law to for different states to help this group of people how that is bringing on like a fallout in people's realities right mm-hmm. so so not necessarily speaking to their situation or mm-hmm. speaking about them, but really speaking from the context of looking at it, what's the implication? Yeah, yeah. So, um, so I should say that in the in the realm of climate change and migration or climate migrants, there are. Um, there are other soft law or kind of guiding principles okay. also. Okay, so so um, there is nothing legally binding like the Refugee Convention. Um, people are looking at how to apply the IDP, the Internally Displaced People's um, Principles, the guiding principles um, to people displaced from climate change. Um, there's something called the Nansen, Nansen Initiative um, on cross-border, um, disaster-induced cross-border displacement. Um, and this is... Um, 
led by, it's led by, I think, Norway and Germany. I can't remember who exactly, but it's a group of countries from the global north and the global south kind of working together to talk through these issues, to create guiding principles or what they call a protection agenda for people who have crossed borders from climate change. Mm. Um, I should also say that the the, difficulty in this topic is that drawing that link from climate change to the displacement is very difficult because it often is indirect so it's not like climate change happens and then you move or you're forced to move it's climate change um, affects the environment which then intersects with all all um, existing factors of migration like like economic decisions or social context or political context right so there's not this clear causal link um but i think in terms of what the implications are for for people is that um i think that um for the people who are displaced because of climate change or people who are displaced in the context of climate change right because again there's this like trouble with the causal link um they are basically without the protection of international law they are often, um, they also don't identify as a climate migrant because they are moving because they're looking for a job, right? They're looking at kind of first order or like um, direct causes of why they've they've moved. And if we look at um, the recent migrations to Europe, I, I would never say that climate change had no impact or no yeah no influence on those movements but we're not looking at it as climate migrants we're not looking at it as climate refugees or whatever we're calling it we're looking at it as people looking to get to europe for safety security a better life um and i think in a increasingly unequal world people are going to move to a place where they have the opportunity for a better life. I mean, I would, I mean, I was lucky to be born white middle class in Canada, but if I needed to move my family somewhere or if I needed to move somewhere to support my family that had a better chance for their well-being, I would do that. Mm. So, I mean, we often think about these things about like an us versus them or like those who are displaced in the global south, but I think we also need to get away that, from that dichotomy when we think about an issue like climate change and how interconnected and how we are all, you know, we are all part of this. So we just want to raise two, two, two quick questions. Mm-hmm. So one would be the, the, inter, uh, the interdisciplinarity of your work is mm-hmm. so immense. Mm-hmm. And I wonder what are some of the challenges that you're yeah. facing? It would be nice to kind of talk more in terms of how do you bring, you know, you're working in migration, in yeah. climate change, refugees, international yeah. law and all of that. That's one. The second thing is, if a lot of the analysis and the things that we're, we're thinking around mig- migrants and we don't really connect it directly to climate change mm-hmm. or climate issues mm-hmm. or in the context of, or we're not framing it in mm-hmm, the context mm-hmm. of climate change, then what is the benefit of now trying to frame it in the mm-hmm. context of climate change? Mm-hmm. Those are like two questions that... Okay. <laughs> um, Gosh, you should be on like a comprehensive exam committee or something. <laughs> Um, okay so the first is on kind of challenges of the interdisciplinarity right um yeah yeah so (laughs) i mean i think this is a huge challenge for me because and i'm sure other students phd graduate undergraduate whatever if you're writing a paper if you're working on a research project um the more you know and the more you learn the more you learn you don't know so um 
when I was writing my proposal for my dissertation defense, for the defense of my proposal, I was going down very long trajectories into citizenship studies or into develop I have a I have my master's is in development so I'm familiar with the development literature but all of the development stuff came back up the climate change um, climate science which is a totally different type of knowledge and presentation of, of literature and and scholarly scholarship than um, other social sciences so um, I would say the challenge of the interdisciplinarity of my work is um, this kind of snaking, not direct path to um, answering any kind of question because I'm trying to exhaust or at least acknowledge and understand the different frames or the different ways of thinking about the same question. Um, so, I mean, there's a million challenges, but I'll just leave it at that for yeah. the disciplinarity. Yeah. Um in terms of why bother connecting climate change to migration at all. So, I mean, everything is now happening in the context of climate change, right? So it doesn't matter if we're talking about uh, migration or trade or um, security issues or the biosphere or, you know, it's, you could be in any any discipline. And the context, I think, is now, now different. And I think... Um, at, at a macro or at a higher level scale, the the um, the context that we're now living in has never it has never been more important to kind of question the um, the disciplines or nation states or dividing up the planet or societies into entities or into different units because more than ever we need to think of ourselves as a collective in terms of how we are going to get past or um, mitigate the effects of climate change and I think that um, you know so for, for, so for example um, when we make political decisions we are often making political decisions from the position of a nation state or from a certain entity or the unit is not is not at the global level and more than ever we need to make decisions at the global level because what we do in canada affects what happens in nigeria or in mexico or in australia so this idea of this divided world coming together and making decisions. No, we need to we need to change the very framework. I think with, of how we make decisions. Um, but in terms of of migration and climate change, I think migration is one example of how what happens in one country affects what happens in another country, both from the perspective of our emissions, but also from the perspective of the consequences of those emissions or of increased globalization or whatever. People are on the move and thinking about people on the move as a risk or a threat, A, causes all sorts of problems for, they frame it as a problem, which has very different policy responses than if you fra frame something as an opportunity. And B, that we live in an interconnected world and this is what living in an interconnected world looks like. People are moving and for benefit to society as a whole, you know, I think diversity is uh, a benefit to Canada, to the world. And so let's not look at this issue as, oh no, there's climate refugees. What are we gonna do to, okay, people are moving people are going to keep moving, more people are going to be moving. How do we change our thinking about this so that um, 
people are empowered or enabled to live their best life regardless of where they are or where they're moving to interesting because you're talking about frame my next question is is about framing mm -hmm. um, and maybe maybe you've answered it maybe not uh, is really does the framing really matter mm -hmm. and and for me i to a certain extent i believe that the world would think the world things in 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 fragment mm -hmm. in in silos so um, we think in terms of one group or the other. Now it's climate change. Maybe mm -hmm. tomorrow is going to be something else. Something yeah. else. Uh, many years ago, it was Millennium Development Goals. Mm -hmm, now it's mm -hmm. Sustainable Development Goals. Mm -hmm. And of course, you're in development studies, mm -hmm. and you, you understand mm -hmm. all of that dynamics mm -hmm. and how it becomes. Yeah. It becomes arrays of different terms and framing. So at the end of the day. How does that framing end up directing our attention mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. on some of these key issues? And is there a way that we can think about these things holistic and uh, from an holistic perspective mm -hmm. versus just thinking in silos? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, um, and again, maybe these questions are beyond your work. Yeah, I don't your, know. Do you know what? I, think, um, I like <laughs> that. I don't want to go through the route. I, I like, well, yeah. <laughs> I like that you brought up the example of the Millennium Development Goals to the Sustainable Development Goals because I worked on a project actually starting in 2009. Hmm. about the post-2015, so the um, Millennium Development Goals, or the MDGs were ending yeah, in 2015. That's right, yeah. They were supposed to be met there by then. Surprise, surprise, they weren't. Um, and now we have the SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals. But um, while I was working, so I was, I started working on this project in 2009, and um, nobody was yet talking about the SDGs or the post-2015 agenda. Hmm. Um I worked with an organization, the um, Center for Inter International Governance Innovation, CG, that's in, based in Waterloo. And so we were one of the first kind of projects working on this. And what I thought at the end of the project, I mean, we did some really interesting work and we um, recommend, made recommendations to the UN and the UN staff that was working on this. Um, but one of the things that I thought was that by having projects like this, um, like this or like any anything else, we were kind of um, reinforcing or creating the idea that there should be a future set of goals, right? So the first set of goals failed; they weren't met, and so the so then we have the new goals that were supposedly going to meet. And I think goals have like great value, and you know whatever I set goals fine, um, but we are kind of. Um, by our, the very virtue of the way in which we speak about things or the way that we talk about frame things, them, yeah. frame them and also reinforce thinking about things in a certain way, right? So if we hadn't given any attention to that or if the, I mean, we are a project, but also the collective, the yeah, the, mm -hmm. the global community, yeah. um, could we have thought of something different? Mm. Um, so in terms of kind of the framing of climate Migrants, I think this is especially relevant in the debates around climate refugees or climate migrants. And um, there is a critical school within the field that talk about um, the way in which by talking about or framing things as climate refugees or climate migrants, we and framing it as a threat, because that's often how it's discussed, um, it securitizes the issue. So this means that in and, and so it, it's thought of as a security issue. 
Um, now, this does two things. One, security issues are often first order concerns for states. So if something's a security issue, it gets political attention, right? Uh, people address it, people's attention goes to it, decisions might be made. But the other thing that that does is that, again, it frames these people as a threat. And so I think we need to be really mindful of the degree to which we acknowledge climate migrants or climate refugees as people who are on the move because of climate change and the way in which you know people have always moved and people have always moved in response to environmental change now it's environmental change often as a result of climate change Mm. um but this has happened for a long time and to a certain degree this is part of human society Mm. or in fact all species move Mm. in response to to environmental change um but when we frame it as something of concern um it kind of reinforces this idea that it's a threat or it's something it's a challenge it's a problem yeah Yeah. and i think and i mean the, the the critical scholars who are working at this are also looking at this in the context of the way in which race or ethnicity is played it plays into this debate um, somebody just released a report. It came up on my like academia.edu feed or whatever that was called um, uh, the dark face of climate change, climate refugees. And I mean, <laughs> there, there are all sorts of innu- like race innuendos when you frame something like this, right? And so um, it, I think framing it that way also creates this idea of the other the us the them and um and yeah so i I mean i struggle with this in my own work obviously obviously just how i'm kind of mumbling through this but i think that we need to be really mindful of these things and even if my work or if anybody's work isn't specifically focused on framing per se we need to be very attentive to how we frame things interesting yeah Hmm. do you know uh, how many people have been displaced by climate change? Mm-hmm. If you do, mm-hmm. or maybe that might be speaking in terms of your research that you will be doing, mm-hmm. how do you intend to know? Right. So, um, no, I don't I, I don't know. The numbers are very hotly debated. Mm. So I th- I'm sure everybody or the other, um, my colleagues across the, the graduate studies faculty who have been in here with you this uh semester or whenever however long you've been doing these podcasts talk about um all of the debates within their field i think as graduate students this is something you encounter you go in with some assumptions and then all of a sudden all of these assumptions start to unravel but um in terms of the numbers there were a bunch of studies that were conducted um and reports that were released in um in like the end of the 90s early 2000s about the, hun- the, the 50 million or the 100 million or the 2 billion climate refugees that would be moving from the global south to the global north. And this goes back to this framing as, as, a, as a security issue, right? It's going to mm. um, destabilize global security with all of these people on the move. Um, but the challenge with, with numbers like 50 million to 2 billion is, A, the range is so broad that what is the reliability of, of those? The other thing with the numbers or knowing the numbers is, again, it's really difficult to know if climate change is why somebody moved. 
right? Yeah, so, that's right. So that's part of the problem. But what we do know, and we can look at things like weather-related disasters um, or in B- right here in BC, the forest fires. So in the 2017 summer, when there was really bad forest fires in BC, there were 65,000 people who were temporarily displaced, but displaced nonetheless because of forest fires. And there's all sorts of climate research coming out, including from our colleagues across campus at PIX and PKIC on um, the link between climate change and forest fires. Um, so we this, there's people who are being displaced here in BC. Um, I think that there... I think that the number was um, 175 million people have been displaced by weather-related disasters in the last 10 years. And there is some um, an organization that's based in Norway that is called the Internal Displacement Monitoring Center, and they keep numbers on this. And one of the really interesting thing about the numbers, despite their kind of how reliable they are or not, and so again, this is whether, we can track weather-related displacement, we can't track the people who are moving because of slower onset events. Um, but we we do know um, from from the data that's coming out is that the number of people who are being displaced from weather-related events alone is actually much higher than conflict, right? So people um, who are being displaced from conflict, who, who are, and if they cross an international border, are eligible for refugee protection, the numbers and the volume of people is actually much higher for people who are being res- uh, displaced because of disasters. Mm-hmm. And so again, I think this is, this is kind of um, why we need to rethink how how we have conceptualized people's movements over time and in the past because we are now living in a new context where the causes and the consequences of movement are much different than they were in the 50s when the Refugee Convention was Great. was drafted. Yeah, Interesting. Um, so how do you intend to, to go about that in your own yeah. work? So um, my, my intention, uh, my plan is, we'll see how it plays out, um, is to I'm not looking for and um, I'm not trying to empirically track the number of people or of um, you know etc. I'm what I'm trying to do is um, through qualitative interviews interview people to see if and how climate change or environmental change is what will be more likely um, played into their decisions to move. So. Um, I'm intending. I'm doing. I'm going to do a pilot first with my with my um, field worker with my interviews because there is a concern that nobody is going to acknowledge the environment because they're going to say they came to Canada because of their family or the economy or a job or you know, and so um, my committee actually was really useful in suggesting I do a pilot first to see like do a couple of kind of. Um, like long narrative interviews about people's life, life, life trajectory, decisions to move, what was happening before or how they came to the decision to move um, to see if or how the environment plays in. Um, there was some studies done in Ontario and Quebec a couple of years ago by somebody named Robert McLemon, who's kind of the Canadian leading like scholar on, on this topic. Um, and they interviewed different um, newcomer communities in Ottawa and Toronto and Montreal and to see if or how the environment played into their decisions. An interesting thing is that we often think about um, climate change or environmental change in the the 
country of origin, so where people are coming from, as kind of what was traditionally called a push factor in, in migration studies. People leave because of. Um, but what a lot of these studies in um, Ontario and Quebec found was that Canada actually is more of a pull factor because of our clean air. And so it's not just necessarily that they're being, they're deciding to leave because of X, Y, or Z in their home country. It's because, wow, the quality of air, life, et cetera, is so great in Canada. It's really attractive. I'm going to go there. Maybe my kid has asthma because of, I don't know, pollution in my city or something like that. Um, but so that in people are coming to Canada because of, our lovely environment for now yeah hmm. the, pool, the, the pool factor yeah wow well thank you so much for for, for sharing your thoughts on, and and really sharing your research with us um uh, so what's the next thing you need to do now with your um, research i mean for my research the next thing that i'm doing is i well i'm resubmitting a shirk application for this year which is due in a couple weeks um and then i need to get my ethics approved um, and again, I'm building into my ethics approval, um, like a pilot study to see how that goes. And if nothing comes out of my first couple of interviews, then I'm going to have to kind of maybe shift tact a little bit or like, I don't know, reevaluate what I think I can, um, do. But the other thing that I'm doing, um, that's kind of related to my, um, PhD work is um, I'm working with an NGO in Vancouver called the Climate Migrant and Refugee Project and we're putting together a panel and a workshop in Vancouver at the World Eco Cities Summit which is in October to try to convene stakeholders in the region in the province to start thinking through these things um, and so and and kind of related to that um, I um, the Center for Global Studies, I was involved in an application they submitted to the Pacific Institute for Climate Solutions on trying to, again, facilitate a discussion and identify kind of key research questions in the region for stakeholders in the BC government or in the Canadian government, both kind of on um, the migrant services, um, community services side of things and also on the kind of climate secretariat side to convene these people to have a conversation about if and how BC is going to be affected and what they need to know to kind of prepare or um, facilitate or manage the the the, um, the the effect that climate change has on people's movement both for people living within the, the province and people coming into the province globally. Um, so as you can probably tell I still am like in this broad topic, looking at different kind of projects within it instead of a nice tight research question that, that I'm taking a single track to answer. Um, and I have, I'm gonna be doing a article-based dissertation. So that allows me to do three different articles. One I already had published and the other two, I'm, I'm envisioning them as kind of projects that tie into either the local context or into the global the global context interesting well thank you so much I, I love the fact that you're wrapping this up or really connecting to the local mm -hmm, like mm -hmm. what are you what you're doing in, in, here in in bc in canada and the other side is really looking at the community engagement piece mm -hmm. of what you're doing because i think at the end of the day if it doesn't go into community and if it doesn't mm -hmm. engage with stakeholders community stakeholders then it's just sitting on the high level and really not connecting to people's needs. So really thank mm -hmm. you for really thinking about this connections and the impact of what you're mm -hmm. doing um, here, here in, um, 
in Canada. Thank you for really being part of Beyond the Jagons. And um, yeah, it's, um, wishing you all the best as you pull all this lovely project together and um, write your two remaining articles and boom, now you become Dr. Nicole Beat Ima. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Beyond the Jargon on CFUV 101.9 FM. For interviewees, contact information or to listen to this episode again, visit cfuvpodcast.com. You can also subscribe, read or review Beyond the Jargon and other CFUV podcasts uh, wherever you get your podcasts.